Welcome back to Engaging History. This is episode three, this episode titled The Mesopotamians, Sumerians, and the Egyptians. My name is Christopher Kinsella. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation based on historical events that I will discuss, formed by amount of research and travels to these areas that I had the opportunity to do. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. The purpose of these podcasts in general is to discuss history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the world around you, and most specifically about why we do what we do, human behavior. But I discuss it in a way that is understandable and hopefully very interesting. Today, we're going to be looking at, in this third podcast, about how and why we started to get into the teaching of writing, amongst other things, the idea of the dawn of astrology. So with that, we're going to start out with this podcast by looking at the very first civilization identified by name. And that, of course, is going to be the Mesopotamians. The Mesopotamians, a wide, wide range of many civilizations within it, that existed from roughly 5300 BC to 539 BC. So this is a a population with an expanse of almost 5,000 years. But please keep in mind that when we say these years, 5300, 539, Rome falls in 476. Remember, again, people in this time period, they didn't know that. They didn't wake up after one heck of a New Year's Eve party into a new year when suddenly they're not supposed to be here anymore. As with the Romans waking up in 477, scratching their heads and say, well, that was a blast. We went back to 753 BC. Wow, what a great ride. Now what are we called? No. Historians are the ones that go back and insert these years based on evidence that significant things changed between one particular time period and another. And more about that as we get into these further, more definitive civilizations. So with the Mesopotamians, what we're going to see with them is the development of schools in order to teach the basics of math and writing. So with this, as I said before in the last podcast, giving you this idea of just next time you write a memo or you write a paper or anything, even a note for somebody, when I asked you just to look at those letters that you're writing, whether it be printing or handwriting, because that's what's coming about here with the civilizations. That's one of the many things we thank the Mesopotamians for. So that last thing that you wrote down, again, not, I mean, even an email or text is fine. But the last thing that you put letters, whether it be onto a screen or onto paper, we call them letters. If I asked you more definitively, what really are those letters, you might be stumped as sometimes my students are. They're letters only because we call them that. Bring somebody from the Middle East, bring somebody from a non-Western culture, and ask them what those letters are. They wouldn't have a clue, would they? And, And why would they? So in order for letters to mean something to us, it's only effective if it means something to somebody else. And that's the reason why the Mesopotamians caught on to this and realized that in order for their culture to be unified, they're going to have to not only understand these symbols that they're putting onto, obviously not paper in their days, in their days it'd either be parchment or papyrus, but in order to understand them, they realized that they had to teach the people 
in order to understand the letters and as well as other symbols that would resemble what we call numbers. So how and why did they do that? Ironically enough, once again, not that much has changed. In fact, here's a quick activity if you want to pause it right after this before I give away the reason for this particular activity. I'd like you to get a plain piece of paper out and with a pen or a pencil, just draw a line across the paper, a nice straight, straight as you can make it line. And at the top of the line, I want you to write these letters. You're going to write all 26 letters of the alphabet, but you're going to write them in a particular way. On the top of the line, just the top of the line, write these letters. A, E, F, H, I, K, L, M, N, T, W, X, Y, Z. Now at the bottom of the line, below that, write these letters. B, C, D, G, J, O, P, Q, R, S, U. All 26 letters are down. Why did you write the letters on top? How are they different than the ones below? If you want to stop here and think about that, please do. I encourage you to do so. If you're stumped and you're too proud to press play before I tell you why some letters are on the top versus the bottom, if you really want to make yourself feel small, ask a kindergartner, first grader, second grader, and they're liable to get it within a matter of milliseconds. A fourth grader on up is liable to be almost as stumped as you might be. By the time we're out of grammar school, we've totally forgotten the reason. The fact of the matter is, folks, you might have also already figured it out by writing those letters out. You see, when you were writing the letters on the top, you were drawing straight lines connected at different angles. The letters below all had curves in them. The Mesopotamians realized, as we still do today, that a young child's hand is not formed the way an adult hand is. Therefore, they don't have the dexterity to be able to draw curves in a way that's meaningful and recognizable to them as well as to somebody else. That's the reason they teach with the letters on top first, and then in later on in the school year or in the next school year, they go work their way down to the letters on the bottom. Oftentimes, as I'm doing this exercise in class, students will uh, jump out or yell out that, oh, that's because of the vowels. Well, no, there's a lot more than just five letters on both the top of the line and the bottom of the line. The bottom, the, the, speaking of vowels, the reason for vowels, folks, has nothing to do with our writing. We have vowels in order to be able to speak what we write, what we read. Vowels allow us to make an intelligent sounding language, word, word connected to sentences, connected co sentences connected to paragraphs. You see, they allow us to speak. They give our mouths, the lower and upper mandible, they give it a break is what our vowels do. The reason being is the vowels, A, E, I, O, and U, possibly Y, the letter Y, those are the letters where the tongue or the lower mandible, lower part of our jaw, does not touch the roof of our mouth. The consonant letters require a connection between both parts of our mouth and our tongue. It's part of the reason why, folks, the tongue, for its size, is the strongest muscle in the human body. 
It's also why by the age of eight years old, as long as we have been learning our native language, we will become masters of that language, of our ability to speak it, most importantly, but as well as be able to understand it. That's also the reason why after roughly the age of eight, if a child attempts to learn a foreign language, especially if they wait until high school, no matter how fluently they know that foreign language, a native speaker will always be able to pick them up as somebody who's speaking a language that was once not the one they were born into. It's not a bad thing. It's just a reality. So this is, again, so much of what we learned from the Mesopotamians. Moving on in terms of what we also learned from them are different advancements in that culture in terms of thought and religion. Now that they were putting symbols called numbers onto paper, they started to experiment with those numbers, different ways to make those numbers change, subtraction, addition, and beyond. Religion was working its way into the culture too, not simply because they were looking for a place to go one day a week. No, you might say they were looking at religion more out of desperation. You see, before when people were hunters and gatherers, it's not that they were not affected by weather, but when you're constantly on the move, you really have no way to track or follow the weather. Now that we're staying in one place for our entire lives, we begin to pick up patterns just as they did. And the Mesopotamians realized that certain events that truly were catastrophic, there was nothing really that they could do to stop it or to make it go away. If a monsoon-type rain, tornadic-type activity, a significant drought affected them, they realized how helpless they were. So this is the population, not the ancient Greeks, not the ancient Romans, those, those groups of people borrowed from the Mesopotamians by looking at natural disasters and simply making them the work of the gods. Clearly, the Greeks with mythology and Roman mythology will get much more elaborative on that. But that essentially is what they, this is what they pulled from the Mesopotamians. So natural disasters, well, that's just simply the work of the gods. And it helped to placate or soothe, calm the popula population. However, before you roll your eyes and say, yeah, well, that's them. We're a lot more advanced than that today. Careful how quick you jump to that conclusion. The reason being is think about when a young child wakes up screaming during the night. A mom or dad rushes in to try to calm the child down. Severe thunderstorm. The flashes of lightning and the booming of the thunder making the windows vibrate. Sure, that's scary. So oftentimes, what might a mom or dad say to a child? Oh, that's just the work of the gods, that nah, nah, probably isn't going to fly. So they get more specific. Oh, that's just the angels and God bullying, isn't it? Yeah, that's just the angels bullying. That is enough to placate the child most of the time. But remember too, a child has to know what bullying is. They have to see a bowling ball hit the pins and go down and all the si uh, sounds that go with it and the flashes of the scoreboard changing as people increase their scores, right? That said, that can help, again, to placate the child, to get the child to go back to bed. I mean, let's face it. Do you really want to try to explain what an actual thunderstorm is by a warm front hitting a cold front and then trying to explain all that? Well, yeah, you, I guess you could put the child to sleep by sheer boredom, but they're going to be back up the next thunderstorm. But bowling gives them something to kind of listen and maybe even smile to as they go back to sleep. But please note, though, folks, 
you might have got the child back to sleep. The Mesopotamians might have understood that it's out of their control. It's the work of the gods. But if you get too comfortable in that frame of mind, you rob yourself of one important thing. And that's the ability to try to understand the events that caused those things to happen in the first place. Not blaming the Mesopotamians, just showing you their strengths, their advancements, but as well as some things, again, that future civilizations would need to build on. However, it is because they blamed the gods that we begin to see the dawn of astrology predating the Greeks, as some people mythically believe started only with the ancient Greeks. So, that within Mesopotamia, part of the reason why Mesopotamia is one of the first organizations of people that we talk about is because not only was Mesopotamia important in terms of their contributions to future societies, but we know that populations around them adapted to their culture. And that's where we get to this last part of Mesopotamian cultures to talk about the spread of it. The spread of Mesopotamian culture, yes, was because of the power and influence of their ideas, but it also had to deal with one individual. And in these podcasts, this is the first human being that I'm actually mentioning by name, Hammurabi. King Hammurabi ruled Mesopotamia in the 1700s BC. We know because of documents that have been uncovered and translated that Hammurabi had three goals during his kingship. In the first two, I'd like you to really pay attention to and see if you see a connection today. First one is he wanted to make Babylon secure. The second one is he wanted to unify Mesopotamia. You see, Mesopotamia and modern-day Iraq, modern-day Middle East, we had civilizations that grew slightly different from one another because of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that somewhat divided the population. Hammurabi wanted to get away around that so he could unify all three areas, areas north of those river systems, the areas in between, and then the areas of the south of it. Difficult to do, but it was a goal of his. So again, number one, make Babylon secure. Two, unify Mesopotamia. So where do we see that connection today? I know Kamarabi's long gone, not trying to say that he's still lurking around here trying to keep those goals going, but rather our politicians have adapted to that, haven't they? Think about it. What was Donald Trump's? Again, has nothing to do with politics, whether you voted for him or not, has nothing to do with that. But think about Donald Trump's campaign slogan in 2016, make America great again. And in making America great again, he constantly talked about one particular thing that he wanted to install at the southern part of the United States, a border wall, as he said, to make America secure again. Folks, politician, politician wannabes trying to get into elected office. You have a way of getting connecting with voters if you can convince them that if they are elected, they will be more secure because of their vote. It made sense to Hammurabi, and it made sense for Trump, didn't it, considering the fact that he won the election. Unifying? Well, clearly, you cannot look at Trump as the big unifier. But again, that also resonates with modern-day politicians. Did it not help get Barack Obama elected in 2008? And it's not because of what he said in 2008. It's what he said in 2004. 
at the Democratic nomination to put John Kerry as the Democratic nominee for president to run against George W. Bush, who was seeking a second term. Remember what Barack Obama said. There are no red states. There are no blue states. There are only purple states. Clearly, that's a message of unification. So again, we see our modern-day politicians echoing Hammurabi's goals. The third one I have kind of set off to the side here to bring up now, because oftentimes it's misunderstood and it's considered a detraction or a minus against King Hammurabi. And I'm not saying it's not. As I said before in my first podcast, don't listen to my podcast to get clear and definitive answers as to exactly why or how something happened. Rather, I'm going to give you the evidence. I'm going to give you the information. You draw your own conclusions. So Hammurabi's third goal was to win a place in civilization. It was as simple as that. Win a place in civilization. Hammurabi wanted to be repeated by future civilizations long after he had died. Well, Hammurabi, considering the fact that this is 2020 and you existed in 1700 BC, I think we can say mission accomplished there, can't we? But you see, oftentimes my students kind of recoil when they realize that that was a goal of his because, well, why as I press my students? Well, it just seems a little egocentric, doesn't it? It seems a little selfish. It's all about them. Folks, think about what a politician goes through, even to run for office, much less get elected, and then once elected, what they and their families go through, the way the opposition attempts to tear them down. And don't even try to make the argument, well, that's just modern-day politics here in America. Really? Look at the way George Washington's reputation was tarnished not because of anything he did as general of the Revolutionary Army, not even because of what he did at the Constitutional Convention. It's only when he became president of the United States, both political parties jumped on him. Why? Because to date, George Washington was still our only presidential candidate and president who was truly an independent. And independent meant he got put in the middle of the road. And that's where he became roadkill more often than not. But the bottom line is, folks, you do need a thick skin if you are going to run for elective, elected office or if, as you are appointed to an office. It's hard on the individual. So it's no surprise that going through all that, they would like to think they left their mark on society. So that's with Hammurabi. And then, as I said, uh, Mesopotamian influence fell or began to fall around 539 BC. It's, as I say, it's not as though suddenly in 539, boom, they were gone. In fact, the next section proves it, which is when we're looking at the Sumerian society. The Sumerian was a subgroup within the Mesopotamians existing about 4,000 to 1,200 BC. So another civilization that, again, expands thousands of years. But what we begin to see here is a more distinct idea of what we call the division of class. In other words, in the Sumerians, from westernized civilization, we begin to see the first evidence that there were, pardon the phrase, haves and have-nots. Now, how do we know this? Coming across individuals that are really aging well, that happened to live back the, uh, that many thousands of years ago? No, of course not. Whereas what we're seeing, folks, is the way that they were buried 
and the artifacts that they were buried with definitely indicated that some people, again, were higher up in a social ladder than others. Within the Sumerians, too, we see that kings were rising through warfare. Individuals, young soldiers, going out and defending the Sumerian society that seemed to be able to come back time and time again, all in one piece, do that enough times, the people start to recognize you. When a leadership vacuum happens due to the death of a king, performance on the battlefield, we see evidence here in the Sumerians that that impressed them. And that's the reason, again, many of their kings were kings only because of how successful they were with the power of the sword. Any connection to modern-day America? Remember, even though we're talking about things thousands of years ago, I promised you I will always bring it back to modern times, to your world. Does performance on a battlefield make a difference to us? The top of our heads, we'd like to think, oh, no, of course not. I mean, great if a person is a veteran of, a, of an American war, but it, no, I mean, by and large, no, we want more than that. Really? Dwight Eisenhower never held elected office before he was elected president of the United States. In 1950, politicians pressed him, General Eisenhower, are you a Democrat or a Republican? He refused to answer. He never really thought about it. Harry Truman, the only sitting president of the United States, the only sitting president, to actually offer to go back to the vice presidency if General Eisenhower would run for the presidency in 1948. That's how popular Eisenhower was, but that's also how Democrats were determined to make Eisenhower a Democrat, and the Republicans were trying the same thing. General Grant never held elected office. But his performance during the American Civil War made him our 18th president. Same with George Washington. So yes, we do look at times for more than that. But participating in warfare still makes a difference even in modern day society. However, what happens if there's a period, a long period of peace where we don't have wars in order for people to demonstrate their prowess? That's when we see evidence in Sumerian society that sometimes a person could join the royal family simply based on the genetic information. In other words, the gene pool. Royalty could be hereditary. Now, while that may seem to contradict number two, think about it. If a particular Sumerian king was the king because of how many successful wars he fought and saved the Sumerian people and then died, you think it's really that far of a stretch of the imagination? that people would look to maybe the oldest son thinking, well, if he came from dad, then he can probably fight like dad. Do we get that here in America? Well, it's not going to guarantee you the Oval Office. It's not going to guarantee you any governorship. But we're not also going to be so naive as to say that the last name doesn't make a difference. You really mean to tell me that George W. Bush was elected president, had nothing to do with his father? John Quincy Adams with his father? Benjamin Harrison had nothing to do with the fact that his great-grandfather was president, even if it was for only a month. Last names do make a difference. Is it a guarantee to elected office? Not in America. You still need the votes. Nobody understands that more succinctly than most recently than Hillary Clinton. Yes, she got the popular vote, but the electoral math is what she was not able to capitalize on. Finally, in this podcast, we're going to take a brief look at the land of the pharaohs, the land of ancient Egypt, roughly 3100 BC 
to around 1200 BC. And we'll look for reason in the future podcast why that year 1200 was so significant. The key to their civilization was the Nile River. Unlike the Tigris and the Euphrates River that separated the Mesopotamians, the Nile River was able to unify them. Remember, if you're getting a little bit raising the eyebrow saying, why, why am I focusing on the importance of these rivers? Because in this area of a period of time, all the way up until the industrialized world, bridges, without bridges, I should say, rivers were massive obstacles. Rivers separated civilizations, separated countries, separated states within countries, even within our own United States. Look at how many state boundaries are formed by the Ohio River, the Great Mississippi River. Rivers, again, before the industrialized age and the ability to throw up a bridge to connect both sides, ridges were, uh, rivers were ob uh, obstacles, huge obstacles, because of their uncertainty and because of how dangerous they were. As one approaches a river, notice you're going downhill all the way to the riverbed. The lower, the lower the topography goes, the more available, easier you are to be a victim to another group of individuals that wants to prey on you. And then once you get to the river's edge, you now have to navigate that entire river to get across it. And then if you're successful, you now have to get up the bank on the other side. That's unbelievably dangerous without modern-day technology. That is part of the reason why, again, however, the Nile River unified the ancient Egyptians and a beautiful river system it is. As I had the opportunity to sail down that river uh, back when I visited Egypt, and I had the opportunity to see their fantastic national museum, where the origin of the pharaohs is though even though we still don't have an idea how and why that came about we know that the pharaohs were the integration of god and human and most specifically the most spectacular example of this of course was king tut where his original face mask i had the opportunity to see there in the cairo museum and then finally i'd be remiss by not mentioning the greatest building contribution that the Egyptians left to society. And that, of course, would be the building of their pyramids, which I had the opportunity to be able to take a step up on to several levels. Of course, this was allowed. I wasn't simply trying to do this. Nobody was looking. But I also had the unique opportunity to go into the largest pyramid through the burial uh, chamber tunnel to the barrier, burial chamber, chamber itself. And I'm telling you right now, if I didn't get claustrophobia then, I think I'm immune to it for the rest of my life just because of how cramped and hot and humid it was inside. But the pyramids was their or were their biggest contribution to their pharaohs. The biggest and best compliment that they could give to their pharaohs by giving them what essentially is an exactly perfect burial plot. Why perfect? Because a pyramid as we know is formed by four triangles. The triangle in the ancient world is the symbol of perfection. The Egyptians were well aware of this, which is why in their minds, they created the perfect pyramid by creating four perfect triangles. And mind you, they did this without one iota of modern technology and did it generally within 20 years. The pyramids, if you look at an overview map, 
seem as though they're kind of placed in an odd way. Two of them are closer to one another than the third one. But if you look directly up into the stellar, uh, stellar sky at night, those pyramids proportionately resemble the difference of the stars in Orion's belt. The symbolism of the pyramid could be, in all the pyramids there, could be a podcast in and of itself. But the fact of the matter, what I want to leave us with, with the uh, ancient Egyptians, is their preoccupation with the perfection, perfection idea of the triangle. Did they create the most difficult, perfect triangle? In their minds then, as well as to some in Egypt today that I had the opportunity to talk to? Yes, they did. But before you jump on board with that conclusion, I just ask you to listen to the podcast on ancient Greece and then try to figure out who made the more difficult, perfect triangle. So with that, that brings us to the end of this podcast. Next time, we're going to look at the rise of Judaism the rise of the Assyrians, and our final pre-Greek civilization, the Persians. That's what we'll listen to next. In the meantime, however, thank you very much for listening. If you have an opportunity, please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Feel free to email me with any questions or comments you might have, or if you're looking for book recommendations as well, I'm happy to pass those your way. If you have any that you've read on this, feel free to pass those my way. Other than that, if you like what we discussed, you can also leave me a review on that website. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.